I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 6. We'll study verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you're visiting with us this morning, it's worth noting that the practice of our church is to do expository preaching verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. And so this morning that means that as we come to chapter 6, we've studied the five previous chapters, every verse, every word, each chapter, and so we've come to chapter 6. Another thing to note is that chapter 5 of Romans has been called the book of justification by faith. And that is how a man or a woman or a child might come before their God as right. And the Bible answers that that can only be by faith in Jesus Christ. Some commentators have called chapter 6 the book of sanctification. The book of sanctification or how a person may be made holy. And so the thing that I want to encourage you this morning is, as we begin chapter 6, this has everything to do with the grace of Jesus Christ in the life of the Christian who is living and fighting against the sin in their hearts. And so as we begin to study chapter 6, may the Lord bless us with his word, with the comfort and the conviction that only come from it. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he give us understanding. May he confront us where we are in the failures of our own lives. May he give us conforming grace and help us to stand as his children. Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard your word and we ask that you would give us understanding. Lord, that you would minister to each of us just as we are. And that, Lord, you would form us into what delights your eternal heart. Lord, that we would look like our Savior and live after him. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. When you speak about anything, you should expect to be misunderstood. That was a piece of advice that a preaching professor told me many years ago. And I wonder if you've ever experienced exactly that. You say something or you write something, and then someone comes and hears or they read And they misunderstand what you've said. Or maybe they take up your words and they twist them or they turn them to mean things that you would never affirm. Well, when we come to the passage of Scripture this morning, we are coming 
right on the end of the chapter in the verses previous to it. And the Apostle Paul, he's concerned that he will be misunderstood by his readers and that some of his readers might take the things that he's taught and turn them to mean things that he would never teach and to encourage things that he would discourage. And so let me remind you where we have been in the book of Romans. In chapter 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul wrote this. Just look a few verses previous with me. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul's concerned. He's concerned that some would accuse him of encouraging to live without morality. To live lives that are, well, worldly and filled with sin. A life that's not governed by the teaching of the law of God. And that's actually not what Paul has taught. That's not what Paul has said. And that's certainly not what Paul uh, would encourage Christians He's also concerned that on the other side of this, that people would take his words that he's taught and twist them to mean something like this. If I get grace when I sin, I can sin boldly because I always get out of trouble. And Paul wants to address these misunderstandings. You see, he he knows the hearts and the minds of people. And he wants them to know the truth rather than than a warped truth. And so, the three things I want us to see in these four verses that we have this morning is firstly, in verse 1, the logic of sinners. The logic of sinners. Not the logic of sin, but the logic of sinners, like sinful people. Then in verse 2, I want us to consider our identity. To consider our identity. And then in verses 3 and 4, to consider our baptism. To consider our baptism. And so as we look at verse 1, you can see the Apostle Paul. And he's thinking logically how a person might read or misunderstand or misread or twist his words in chapter 5 verse 20. And he cuts them off at the pass. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, he knows what they'll think if they read his words. He knows how they will misinterpret the things that he's teaching. Because Paul knows that there are some that don't like him. They don't like him for a number of reasons. There are some who are Jewish people that knew him whenever he was Saul of Tarsus a great defender of Judaism and persecutor of Christianity, they want nothing to do with him. He could say that the sky is blue and they would say that it's pink. You see, they don't want anything of Paul. They want nothing to do with his teaching. And so at every point, they'll turn to the left or to the right or take it into their hands and try to change whatever he said. They're his enemies. They're coming against him as legalists against the word of God. But Paul also knows... That as he writes, he's writing to sinful people. He's writing to sinners in the church of Rome. People just like him that struggle with the same things 
that he struggles with. And he knows that the logic of sinners is such that it always deals the cards and makes the arguments in favor of sinning more rather than less. And so Paul answers this. What then shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? I really think it does. You know, the person is hearing Paul in verse 20, that where sin increases, grace increases all the more. It makes perfect sense. If you sin, you get more grace to cover that sin. Why not sin a lot? So that you can get more grace because who doesn't want more grace? A plus B equals C. It's, it's really sound logic. It's airtight. It's, it's a good argument. It makes good sense. And I point this out to you this morning because sometimes I think that you and I can convince ourselves that sin doesn't make sense. That if we can show people how ridiculous their sin is, how foolish it is, that, well, they'll not do it. But that's not really true. Because sin makes logical sense. It appeals to the things that we like. It does, and so we will rationalize it in any way we can so that we can have a rock-solid case to ourselves to not feel guilty to do it again and again and again. And so friends, if you're sitting and you're listening, maybe you're visiting with us, you're saying, well, pastor, you're saying a whole, whole lot about me. Well, I just want to ask you a question. Do you ever rationalize your sin? Do you? Do you ever make excuses and find a good argument for why you can do it this one more time? With really good logic and tight logic that makes good sense. Friends, I bet you do because I bet you're just like me. And I know that I certainly do this with my sins. You may be sitting and you think, I don't know, Pastor. But has this ever been your thought process? Yes, I know that this is sin, but boy, I really enjoy this one. I like this sin. It tastes good. It feels good. It makes me happy. And after all, the Bible teaches that God is a God of love. The Bible teaches that God loves me. He loves me and he wants me to be happy because he loves me. And this sin, it makes me happy. And the Bible also teaches that he's a God of forgiveness and a God of grace. He'll forgive me of this sin because that's who he is and that's what he does. He'll forgive me of this sin that I love because this sin makes me happy. Because he is a forgiving God. He always forgives. He is always gracious. You ever gone through that? This relationship, that relationship, this act, that act, this self-affirming sin that you enjoy. I wouldn't enjoy it if God didn't make me this way to enjoy it. He's given me this taste. And so you and I, we walk down the stairs to the depths of the logical departure of our sins. Have you ever thought like that? 
Friends, I think we need to guard our hearts and make war against thoughts like this. We can convince ourselves and we can twist the grace of God into a free pass for sin. Like a golden ticket, you get one free sin. One free sin from him that we can offend God. And we can be like a child who borrows money from dad to hire the assassin who will come and kill him so that we can inherit our inheritance sooner rather than later. You say, Pastor, that's really dark. But Paul expects that the logic of the hearts of sinners can even contort the message of the gospel of grace to give you an occasion for sin rather than righteousness. And so he answers it in the passage of Scripture this morning. And what does he say? Well, in verse 2, he answers the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means, or very literally, may it never be. He's emphatic. It's a loud answer. If he were to say it instead of write it, it would almost be a shout. No, absolutely not. You don't sin so that you'll get grace to cover. This sin, it's true that the grace of Christ is sufficient for the worst sin. But you don't sin so that you can get more. Friends, the grace of Christ is freely given And if you believe in Christ, you already have more without offending God and an attempt to get more. But he doesn't only answer the question of should we sin so that we get more grace by saying no or absolutely not. He says, consider your identity. That's the trajectory that he takes in verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin, still live in it. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Now friends, you and I live in an age that is teaching us to question our identity, to remake, reform our identity, to dig into who we are and to express to the world who we really are, that we will write in letters of our own blood who we really are. We decide who we are. Well, the Apostle Paul is here telling us that if you are in Christ Jesus, you have an identity because of him. That You have an identity because of him. He points us to who we really are, not who we would be. He says, we are those who have died to sin. Those who have died to sin. This is the Greek way of expressing a past tense, if you will. That the death that a Christian has, according to sin, has happened not just yesterday, but days ago, long time ago. It's an old fact in your life. 
He's saying according to sin and the things that sin does, the thoughts that sin has, the words that sin speaks, the lifestyle that sin lives out, if you're a Christian, you are among those people who have already died to sin. And that death that you had in sin does not, does not work with the life you currently live. And you're living. These two things can't be held in the same person. And it makes perfect sense. It's not a hard thing. It's logical, if you will, that a dead thing can also be a living thing. It just makes sense. How many of you have houseplants right now that are struggling to live? Maybe you should put both hands up. I have no green thumbs at all. A dead plant's not a living plant. A dead tree doesn't give you fruit, it just gives you firewood. Right? Dead things are not living things. A living cow is in the field eating hay and grass. It is certainly not on your dinner table as steak. This is common sense. It's rock solid, airtight, sanctified logic, if you will. And there's the comparison in the identity of the Christian is that if you're in Christ, sin and everything to do with it has already been put to death in you. And you may say, well, hang on a second, Pastor. I'm still a sinner, even though I'm a Christian. I know I shouldn't sin, but I believe I have true faith in Christ. I'm truly redeemed, but I still sin. I still sin. But friend, I want to point to you this wonderful truth that if you are a Christian, you're not identified by that sin. That sin has died in Jesus Christ your Lord. All of its guilt, all of its pain, all of its effects, all of its anguish, it was united to Him. It's been put to death for you in Him. And the thing that you have in light of his death is life. You have a different identity, not as a dead sinner, but as a living Christian united with a living Lord. That's what you have. Praise God. Praise God. And Paul is saying a life of sinfulness that sins and sins more with this twisted and contorted and perverted idea that if you sin more, you get more grace. This antinomianism. He says that's not appropriate for your life. Those are the thoughts and the logic of death. Your identity as a living Christian is at odds with an identity that indulges sin. Paul continues in verses 3 and 4 to pursue this idea. He doesn't take his focus off of it at all. In fact, he then goes to explain it in a greater measure. We've talked about considering our identity as people who are dead to sin. And now he points to a place that none of you probably have expected in verses 3 and 4 for you and for me to consider our baptism. That's what he says. 
Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, think of who you are. You're dead to sin. And then secondly, he says, consider your baptism. Verse 3, he writes to Christians, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's the first thing he says, verse 3 here. He's thinking of it. He's writing to a church. He's not writing to just any old person. He's writing to Christians. To baptize people. To folks who find themselves in communion with other believers. But most importantly, people who have been baptized into Christ. Now I'm very sure that some of you are sitting and you're thinking, does baptism pouring water over my head, or for some of you who are really deep water divers, getting dunked? Does that unite me with Christ? Is that how I got baptized into Him? Friends, I want to simply remind you that what he's talking about here are people who are spiritual, and he's talking about the spiritual reality of baptism here. The reality of being united with Christ. When he speaks of baptism, it's as if Christ and all of who he is has been poured over us so that we could be said to have been baptized into him, united with him. That's the language. And he's going to pursue the language of union with Christ throughout much of chapter 6. So just get used to it. Baptized into Christ, not just by water, but by the working of the Holy Spirit. Again, a sacrament has two parts, does it not? It has a sign and a seal, a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. And what do we say every single time we have the Lord's Supper or a baptism? It works by faith. And the signs point us to Christ and charge us to faith. And so if we can get back to Paul's real argument, his real discussion, it's not a debate about baptism. Rather, it is a calling of Christians to live after Christ in light of their connection to him. That's what Paul's writing and teaching about. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into him, united with him, that we were baptized into his death? So we're back to the theme of death and its relationship to sin in the life of the Christian. And he's saying, if you're in Christ Jesus, who died, you are baptized and united to him even in his death. Where did Christ die? He died on a cross. That's very simple. It's the story of Easter. It's the thing that Christmas anticipates. That it looks forward to. Over the course of his life and throughout the ages of history. What did Christ die for? Well, it's very simple. Sinful men hated him and Christ was hung on a tree for sinful people. Jesus didn't die for his sins. Did Jesus ever sin? No, he lived a sinless life. Who did he die for? You and me. 
Every man, every woman, every child who would ever live and have faith in him, that's who Christ died for. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, don't you know that whenever Christ hung on the tree and all the wrath of God descended upon him, all the torments of hell descended upon him, all the weight of your sin hung on him. And when he died, it was your death that he died and put to death. It was your death and my death that died on the cross of Christ. That we were united with him as if we hung with him on the cross. That all the punishment, all the pain, all the anguish, all the offense of all of our sins were on him. On him. And all of their punishment that they deserved was fully poured out. Fully served fully experienced in his body on the tree. And when he breathed his last, it was over. All our sins were put to death in him. And we were united with him even in his death and in verse 4, in his burial. And as he took him down off the cursed tree, it was as if we were in him, in his bosom, baptized even into his burial. That the lifeless body of all of our sins was laid in a tomb. Never to live again, never to see the light of day. That's what Paul is saying. You want to know how you're dead in sin? It's because you're in Jesus. It's because in him, in all of his groaning, all of his suffering, your sins were put to death. In Christ, sin, our sin, your sin, died and was buried. And it was not resurrected. It stayed dead. Yet in him, the one who was raised from the dead, we also were raised to life. Friends, this is really good news. You may be saying, Pastor, this is very, very theological. My head's getting up in the clouds. It's really hard to go where you're at right now. Well, let me put it really simply. It's not as if your sin was a slave master and Jesus just bought you from them. And you were set free that you might make a mistake again. And get sold into slavery again. And might have the chains of that slave master cold and heavy hanging from your wrists and your ankles and around your neck again. No, that's not the case. That you just got a little bit of an escape or a reprieve for some time or even that you just won the battle. But there'd be another battle and another battle. Because the enemy, enemy is still raging and the war has not been finished. No, no, no. The message of this is that in Jesus, it's not only that you've been freed from the tyranny and the slavery of sin, that it might come again, but that your sin has been put to death. It's not coming after you again. It can't have you again. There are no more chains. There's no more slavery for the Christian There's no more fear 
of sin. There's no more of a mind that says, well, I'm just a sinner. I identify with my sin. It's this, it's that, it's another. I'm this sort of Christian, that sort of Christian. As if we're all broken apart by the different sins that we really like to indulge. Now Paul says, no, no, no. You're just a child of God by the blood of Christ. Your death, your sin has been put to death. It's been buried. It's not coming back. It's never going to get dug up. And Christian, you are free not to sin. Nothing can be further from the Christian than a lifestyle of sin. Christian, you should not go on sinning because you do not have to. And you should be putting the remnants of sin to death in your body because ultimately Christ has already won the battle for you. This is nothing but wonderful and good news. You don't need a golden ticket for a few free sins. You have the wonder of the forgiveness and grace of God that has purchased you from it and put your sin to death that no longer can you be identified by it. But now you are known by the blood of Jesus Christ who was slain for you. And you're not called sinner, but rather Christian. Friends, is that enough for you? It's not radical. It's filled with hope. It's not some kind of wild and radical grace. Sin as much as you want. Rather, it's drink as much as you want of Jesus Christ and eat as much of him as you can take. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're beloved. You're in him. And you live no longer to fear death. This is the Christ that's held out to you. This is the Christ who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. This is the Christ who's coming again. Will you put your faith in him? And Christian, will you rejoice in this that you have? Let us pray together. Oh Lord God, we praise you for what we have been given in your son. A substitute, one that would take our cross who would bear our sin. Lord, as your word says, you would make him to be sin as an embodiment of all of our rebellion that he would die for us. We praise you, O Lord, that we don't have to fear you, that you would turn your back on us, that, Lord, you would push us away with a hand of anger nor lift a hand of vengeance against us. But that, Lord, in Christ Jesus, we're called to a life of holy living. A life lived in him because we are a people covered in his blood. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.